Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. So Sugi, where were you when you heard about the Supreme Court's leaked draft opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade? I was online, as I always am, doom scrolling. <laughs> doom scrolling, that's all I do, other than grading. Um, but there's doom scrolling and then there's row scrolling, which really feels to me like doom scrolling DEFCON 1. Yeah, I mean, I think, I feel like people have been saying that this is was going to happen, has been warned about, and I know that it should not be as a surprise, but I really... I really thought that the Republicans did, I don't know what I thought. I thought that they would, I feel like this is a terribly dangerous thing to do. And I thought, and not just because I think it's dangerous, it's dangerous for everyone who's being affected. I think it's dangerous for the Republicans to do. And I thought that they would not do it, maybe. Well, it's it's not clear to me that this is over. I mean, that's a draft opinion. So... I hope it's I hope it's not over. Um, and I feel like I've seen people kind of cautioning against acting like it's over um, and also talking about ways to make, you know, in a potentially post Roe v. Wade world um, that we've been warned about and that many people have predicted that there are a lot of things that can be done um, to make abortion as safe as possible and as accessible as possible. And we'll just have to think about other systems to do that. But anyway, I will I want to say gun. one thing though, like the, the language that you see in Alito's opinion, which has been talked about on other podcasts and how aggressive it is. And also just what's been going on with Clarence Thomas and his wife and her role in the January 6th, um, insurrection. It's very hard not to, you know, and Thomas was recently out saying like, I feel like the leak has ruined the credibility of the court. And I'm like, no, well, <laughs> You guys You're are doing the credibility it. of the court, you giant yeah. tool. Um, anyway, we're jumping okay. the gun a little because we have actually two wonderful guests joining us today to discuss this and to discuss writing about abortion. So Shelley Oria is the editor of the new McSweeney's anthology, I Know What's Best for You, a multi-genre collection of writing in response to the reproductive freedom crisis, and Kristen Arnett is a contributor to that anthology. First, Kristen is a queer Florida writer. Her recent novels include With Teeth, published by Riverhead Books in June 2021, and Mostly Dead Things, published by Tin House in 2019. Mostly Dead Things was a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in Lesbian Fiction. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by Shelley Oria. Shelley is the author of New York One, Tel Aviv Zero, and the editor of Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement, which McSweeney's published in 2019. In 2017, Clean, her digital novella that was commissioned by McSweeney's and We Transfer, a favorite service of ours, which we use all the time, uh, received two Lovey Awards from the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. Uh, her fiction has appeared in the Paris Review and on selected shorts at Symphony Space and received a number of awards and has been translated into several languages Shelley lives in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. So Shelley, you began, began working on this collection in 2019 when Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, RIP, was still alive. A tremendous amount has been written about abortion rights between then and now, and, and most of it is legal and political analysis, which is important, but that's not what we do on this podcast. We talk about how literature informs politics, and, and you and Kristen decided to approach this political issue through art. So I guess we'd like to start off by asking both of you why. Yeah, I think this is something I've been thinking so much about, obviously, with these last two books that it's going to be close to five years that I've been working on both of them together. So this is a question that comes up a lot. And I think 
you know, often when it comes up, I kind of want my pull is to answer most honestly first and just say, you know, I made this book because McSweeney's asked me to. I think the contributors wrote their pieces. Kristen can, can correct me in a minute if, if that's wrong, but I think that's right for her too. She wrote that piece because I invited her to write it. And it sort of sounds like a silly answer that, that um, almost makes me think like when I used to, to teach, and I think a lot of teachers knows this, know this moment, when you if you make the mistake of asking students like, what made you choose this class? And always at least some dude is like, well, it's at 5 p.m. and it works with my schedule. So it sort of feels like that kind of answer that's like, okay, you're not, you're saying a non thing, but it doesn't feel that way to me. I think it, it this answer points to the responsibility that uh, publishers have, that editors have, that anyone curating or producing a cultural space has if we want art and literature to respond to moments of crisis and to social injustice. Um, now, you know, do we want art and literature to do that? Why do we want art and literature to do that is sort of a much larger conversation. I think for me, um, you know, and I, I don't think any one individual artist or writer has that obligation to make work about anything they're not um, pulled to make work about just because it's in the news and it's upsetting. That's at least um, my view. And I know there's sort of this kind of easy cynicism that we also hear a lot sometimes of like, you know, art doesn't change the world and nobody reads books anymore and like the, those things. And and there's truth and validity to, to those as well, for sure. But I think ultimately our beliefs, in my view, for the most part are choices we make. So I can just say I make the choice to believe that art does matter and that literature matters, that books matter um, kind of in ways that maybe we can't even name or quantify or explain in real time and can see more in retrospect. Um, and I make the choice to have that belief because I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning otherwise, you know? Well, but certainly art does things that, uh, you know, there's plays in here, there's poems, there's fiction, there's also creative nonfiction, but I mean, fiction does things that, that a news story isn't going to do. You know, I mean, I think there are special things that art accesses that um, are different, but I just wondered if you, and obviously if you, if, if you choose to do an anthology like this, you're choosing to make art, right? You're, you're, you're saying this isn't going to be, a, you, know, a, you know, there are many other kinds of books you could write about this subject, but we want to do it in art, you know? And I wonder if, Kristen, for you, what you felt was special about the way that art can approach this particular subject and, and offer comfort or offer in learning or offer none of those things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good question. Uh, Shelley did approach me about taking part in this anthology. I feel very lucky that I was able to be part of this anthology because I think like it's, uh, I mean, we've talked about this, Shelley and I, it's like, it feels like a little bit of a community and a conversation, like an ongoing conversation inside of this anthology um, that feels like it's open and able to be accessible to further conversation, which is my favorite way to access literature, is ongoing questions and conversation, um, which I think is my favorite thing about art, is uh, furthering a conversation or like finding not a better way to ask the question, but a better way to figure out how to ask a different question, maybe. So um, when Shelley asked me if I'd be willing to contribute to this, I was like, this is a great way for me to think about how I want to think about fiction. I write a lot about um, like what I call like the lesbian domestic. So I was like, okay, like I, I, I try and write a lot about bodies, like lesbian bodies in Florida specifically. Um, so thinking about how I would write a story that involves like a lesbian couple and thinking about how I would involve reproductive rights, I was like, well, it's just kind of like, 
sitting there in the background all the time. Uh, so another thing I like to think about too, in terms of fiction and art is like the everyday lived experience, like what a day-to-day -day lived experience looks like and how um, reproductive rights sits inside those things. It just sits there regardless of if we're thinking about it or not. So in, in writing this story, I found it, I was like, oh, this is like a thing that feels very deeply significant to me, but it, I started thinking about it in ways that I hadn't in before in terms of fiction. Um, where I was like, okay, what if I think about it a little closer? Like, what if this is a couple who's like, you know, trying to conceive and then like, what would, what would that be like if the conception went in a way that they did not want for themselves? And like, what would that look like specifically in Florida? Um, and I grew up in a very conservative evangelical household in Florida where uh, the reproductive rights were discussed very consistently. So it's like something I was like deeply familiar with on the other aspect of it growing up, but thinking about it in terms of fiction, I felt like I was coming at it from another viewpoint, which felt helpful to me. I was, I was like, oh, I'm relearning how to ask the question. And that felt like, in to me, in terms of like making art, deeply significant because I'm always really trying, I never really... <laughs> I would say I'm a person who never feels like I really know anything about anything, but I love figuring out a way to like, maybe that's the librarian brain I have as a librarian, but I'm like, I love to think about like how I can like ask the question a different way and re-ask the question. So I felt like this was like, and it felt like a safe place to do that. This was like an anthology where it's like, Shelley was very careful and I felt like consistently like held and felt like, I'm like, okay, I can like explore this in a way that like maybe I would be nervous about in other capacities. I, the, the other thing that I noticed reading this is like what f fiction can do and creative nonfiction is it creates, it particularizes an experience. So you're dealing with a human being and a person and a full life. And like in, in Kristen stories, which we're going to hear from in a minute, you know, a couple who've got concerns and loves and, and worries and all sorts of particular things instead of having the conversation on a sort of philosophical level where people immediately drop back into positions of that are well-worn, right? And so I feel like that is an important thing that this anthology does. I don't know if that's something you were hoping for, Shelley. Oh, for sure. And I'll, I'll add, I mean, in a way that touches on the, the choice to do a multi-genre as opposed to creative nonfiction is I think part of what you were kind of uh, maybe getting at there. But I also want to add, you know, this on, uh, in a broader way of like why, you know, what can art do? Like why respond to political issues with, with art or with books in general? that I think, trying to think of how to put it exactly, but but basically that 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 art and literature can um, capture nuance and complexity in ways that other forms of social activism sometimes struggles to. I think, you know, in the political sphere, when it comes to activism, we know that clarity and goal is crucial. A campaign, a protest, anything in that realm needs to have a lot of clarity of goal. And I think when we think of so much of what we're talking about here, like when, when you have that kind of clarity of goal, sometimes would get sacrificed or the casualties of that are nuance and even complexities. And so, you know, if you want to make the point of like, hey, you know, these aggressions toward women and women's bodies are part of a larger context, um, you know, the, the idea that a society in which sexual assault is rampant and the fact that that same society is now policing women's women and women's bodies in a way that robs them of their agency and bodily autonomy and like forces them to stay pregnant when they don't wish to like that's not some weird coincidence right that these two things are happening in the same society so there's like 
a lot of mechanisms in our society kind of keeping women in their place and keeping um, women and especially women of color and especially queer women, especially women with disabilities, um, having less power than men. And so if you want to make that point, I would suggest that that books stand a much better chance than politics whenever this is just one example but if you're trying to to sort of capture any kind of nuance or complexity i think that art has something to offer to that conversation or is it just a better medium it's a better um a better equipped medium to tackle to tackle nuance kristen i wonder if you could read to us from your story the babies yes um it's my first time reading aloud from this so this is uh, exciting yeah um okay so i have so I, honestly, this is delightful. Uh, I am excited to read from this. So I'll go ahead and um, just read like a short section um, from the very beginning of the story. So um, this is two women who are married to each other that have been trying to have a baby. And they have discovered that one of them has discovered that she is pregnant. And so she's trying to figure out where to hide the pregnancy test. And she decides to hide it inside a jar of peanut butter because her wife loves to have a snack when she comes home from work, even if they're gonna go out to eat or if they're gonna have dinner. So that's where we'll be starting from. Let's go out to eat, I'm starving, Julie said. She ran her hands through her short, dark hair. Her cheeks were all pink from the heat. Her wife had never looked better than she did in that three second span, flicking up her hair until she looked like a goofy little porcupine. That is the mother of my child, Shauna thought. The parent of our kid. We're going to have a baby with spiky porcupine hair. A Julie Shauna baby. Why don't you have a quick snack, Shauna replied. Julie got out the peanut butter and slapped a loaf of bread on the counter. She was aggravated, Shauna could tell, but her wife wouldn't ever say anything about it. She pushed conflict down until it rested like an ulcer in her guts. Her wife was a marketing manager for a chain of local coffee shops. She spent most of her time being on for her clients and for her coworkers. When she got home, she deflated, got soft or testy, depending on the day and her mood, and most of the time needed at least an hour before she could hold a conversation. Shauna's father had been that way too. It had been especially bad when her mother had been going through her miscarriages. There'd been multiple. Stop thinking about that. This is a happy day, she reminded herself. Julie was hunting around for something to spread the peanut butter. Shauna handed her a butter knife and a small plate. Just a paper towel, Julie said, and then she unscrewed the lid to the jar and saw the pregnancy test. When she pulled it free, it made a wild suction sound, obscene like flatulence, and they both laughed hysterically. Oh my God, Julie said. They screamed and then they hugged. Julie put her hands on Shauna's belly as if she could maybe feel something in there. And they laughed again because there was peanut butter on everything. Peanut butter on their hands and clothes, peanut butter on the counter, peanut butter all over the pregnancy test. Dandelion, the cat, began licking peanut butter off the countertop. The peanut butter dotted above her lip and gave her a mustache, which made them laugh even harder. Okay, I'll stop there. <laughs> Kristen, thank you so much. I, um, I love that we're the first place that you've read from that story because I love it. Um, and I'm really curious, and you've talked, to, we've gotten to this a little bit already, but I'm curious about the kinds of conversations you two had about abortion and the language around it and the history of its depiction in literature during the writing and editing of your piece. And, and Shelley, I'm curious about what you saw in this story when you first read it and just a little bit about the editorial process between yeah. the two of you. I mean, I think I could start off for the two of us and say, like, Shelley was very, like, 
a beautiful, like, a, it was honestly one of the best editing processes I've ever had. It was very careful. Um, it's It was my first time um, as a fiction writer, honestly, as a writer in general, writing about something as, like, particular as abortion, specifically about, like, two people going through something where they had wanted to have a baby and, like, what that would look like when you lose that baby and what it would be like in Florida specifically to try and, like, go through and be like, what's what's the medical process around the body look like to try and deal with that? Um, and I felt like in talking with Shelly about it, it was a lot of back and forth and like careful conversation about like, what is like the intimacy of these two women look like? Cause that felt first and foremost, like the most important I think is like what, what their conversations look like with each other. Um, and then like, you know, like the bigger world on the outside, like kind of sitting around it, which to me a lot of time just feels like Florida. Maybe it's like a, like a, like a third generation Floridian. Like it feels like I live here and like a lot of things are just sitting around me all the time. And so it felt like a lot of like very careful back and forth about like how we can bring up the nuance of, um, of grief. Cause that was like a story to me that felt like very much about like grief and like for something that was wanted, like it's, this was a pregnancy that was wanted. And what does it look like when, when one person that's in a relationship loses that baby and how does the conversation happen between the two when one is the body carrying the baby and the other is the body that wanted it also, but is not like holding it. Um, and I think Shelly was very thoughtful about that process, but I'd love to hear Shelly what you, what you think about it too. Well, thank you for that. I think, um, well, first I just want to say, I want to give a shout out to Amy Summerton, who was my assistant editor, um, on this project. And I think, you know, when you're an quote unquote editor on a project like that, most of the work you do or that I did at least is not the actual editing. And for the actual editing, Amy did a ton of it too. So she was also part of, of our process. So it was kind of like the three of us. So just to give her kind of a, a voice in this sort of, or to try to, um, or at least credit, if not a voice, um, I think I can say, first of all, that the for me, I fell in love with this story right away before, like just a few lines in when I realized what it was, that, that it was um, two women having a baby together that also I don't think we got into that, but the, the way that these particular two women are having a baby is that it's the woman carrying uh, the baby and the other woman's egg. So kind of making that in terms of the book that I wanted to make, um, telling that kind of queer story, I was already in like before anything um but I also felt really really um well excited it's very hard to find the right language when talking about this topic um so excited is the word I was about to use and that is the wrong word (laughs) to use here but I felt um that the resonance let me put it that way of of also this particular story that um as as Kristen alluded to um they find themselves going to an abortion clinic for a pregnancy that they very much wanted. And I think it's, if I have the detail right, it's like three years or something that they had tried to conceive. And um, and then to have to confront these anti-abortion um, protesters in this kind of moment, there's something so powerful about that to me that becomes this kind of metaphor for the blindness, for for the, the audacity of thinking that you know anything about another person's story, body, their decisions. Like there's something about that, um, that moment that just captures that larger problem because arguably that is always 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 true that you never know these protesters never know anything about the women that they're yelling at and in particular there's um this one moment in the story where um the protester kind of shoves her child um in sean and julie's face 
and to, to make the point of like, how can you do this to a child? Meanwhile, the child looks terrified. Um, and so the, also that this sort of terrible, um, dark, um, darkness and, and irony of that moment, which to me, that's, it sort of ties to a much larger conversation, but it's something that pops up for me so much is the use of like the children. We see it now with like trans rights and, you know, the fight over that. And in so many ways, like the kind of, um, hypocritical um, use of the children's safety. So there's something about that moment too that in a way is like the core not only of this particular story but so much of what I was going for with the book. I was reminded just as you were talking about, I don't know if either of you saw this, but there was sort of like a meme circulating um, that was sort of talking about um, in the wake of the leaked the leaked opinion about uh, overturning Roe v. Wade like that um, talking about the unborn is extremely convenient because they haven't done anything. And it was sort of uh, like that, you know, they won't protest, they won't raise their own voices, and that, you know, they don't need anything, they haven't asked you for anything. And so it's like a very convenient sort of set of people for whom to advocate. And I just um, couldn't help but think about that. And as I was reading, um, Kristen, your very poignant story, where like, yeah, I was just thinking about the instrumentalization of children um, as a weapon of argument for other things, um, which is, I think, a thing that you can see in actually all, all sorts of movements and, and not just... Um, the anti-abortion politics that we see around us. And I would just add, you know, that that, that story is a really good example of what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, that, that art provides an opportunity to particularize an issue. So creating this sort of particular case for these two women, and that moment that you talked about with it when the woman puts the, shoves the child in front of, of course, they would want, they want nothing more than to have this child, right? Uh, have a child like that, you know? Um, and so it's a cruel act in a way, right? And so it's a, there's that, that is the kind of cruelty that I think that a story like that gets across very well. I've, I, was, I just wanted to compliment that. Shelley, you not only edited the anthology, but you also contributed to it. I wondered if you could read to us from your story, We Bled All Winter. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, thank you for asking. Um, just thinking of how to kind of set it up, what what you maybe need to know or what the listeners need to know. Um, so this this is a story. The story is quite vast and complex, and it has three sections, which are three different points of view. And I'll um, this this section that I'll read is from the first um, the f- from part one, where the narrator um, is Israeli. Her girlfriend is Palestinian. They're both uh, undocumented, living in the states, undocumented, currently living with um, the girlfriend's relative. Um, and the, the narrator, um, had an abortion not, not that long ago. Um, she found herself pregnant after their former boss, um, raped her. The added talk about complexity and nuance there is that before this, uh, incident of, of sexual assault, she did flirt with him. They actually made out once, which was cheating on her girlfriend, which her girlfriend does not know about. So that's kind of, I think, all you need to know here. Oh, and she's, and now he's been, um, that's a lot of setup, but it's quite a complicated story. They, the man has his own idea of what happened and has this whole fantasy. He thinks they're going to give the child up to adoption for adoption and he wants to have the baby. So, um, he finally tracked them down and she's having a conversation with him, um, upstairs at the relative's apartment and is coming back down to, to their space. When I came back down, Jasmine was in the kitchen and everything smelled like fried onion and sumac. How'd it go? She asked with her back to me cooking. Fine, I said. Tell me, she said. Her voice was cheerful. Everything felt wrong, but I understood we were pretending that this was no big deal and I wanted to contribute. Not much to tell, I said. Now he knows. 
I shrugged, though she couldn't see. Took a while, though, my girlfriend said. I shrugged again. I got into the whole fake clinic story, I said, which was true. At the end of our call, I told Ohad the story of how Jasmine and I made an appointment first with an abortion clinic that turned out to be a creepy anti-abortion center. They read to us from the Bible and kept referring to us as friends no matter what we said. It probably took us longer than it should have to realize we were in the wrong place, across the street from an actual clinic in a building that looked identical. I told Ohad this story like it was a funny anecdote. I mentioned their sign, which read, Plan Your Parenthood. Why would you tell him that story? Jasmine asked, and she turned around then with such sharpness that she knocked a jar of olive oil off the counter. It shattered with a spectacular sound, the promise of tiny shards for weeks. I got up to help her clean, but Jasmine's arm stretched out to stop me, and I paused, still by the table. What's the point of you getting in this mess, she said, but she didn't move. We looked at each other. He was crying, I said. I didn't know how to get him to stop crying. Also, I accidentally said I had a miscarriage, sort of, and, and didn't know how to correct myself. My girlfriend's face asked if I was joking, and my face said, nope, totally serious. She shook her head, and now I couldn't read her face. In a way, it was all so ridiculous, and Jasmine often found absurdity hilarious. A part of me imagined she might laugh now, that we might laugh together. But she said, so you lied to him before you told him the truth. I said, not exactly. I don't think she heard me. She said, and that horrible place. We lost a crucial week thanks to them. We, we were so upset. How's that a joke? I said, we made it in time. I tried to smile. Yeah, everything could have been much worse. Only one day later, the second trimester cut off. But I was trying to remind Jasmine that didn't happen. Not the point, she said. She looked at me and her eyes welled up. I walked into the puddle of oil and I didn't slip and I hugged her and she let me. I'm going to stop here. Thank you so much. Um, it really is such a complex story um, and I so appreciate its nuance. Um, and I also was especially interested in your story because a couple of years ago, a friend asked me to be in an ad for Unrestrict Minnesota and this involved my going to a, a place and sort of being given a bunch of information and then interviewed about it. And it was for a campaign to spread awareness that crisis pregnancy centers, which is what they're sometimes called, existed. And I had had, prior to this, very odd experience, which apparently featured me on a billboard somewhere in Minneapolis, and I never saw it. Um, but like, I had no idea that these crisis pregnancy centers existed. Um, and your story includes not only the perspective of the couple that you just that you just read about, but also the perspective of um, Ohad, the, the boss to whom you referred. And I wondered if you could read that paragraph as well. Oh, sure. And now I think I don't need setup at all. I think I did all the setup. I think before. you did. <laughs> um, so this is from his perspective. Later I tell her, oh, <laughs> I still need a little bit of setup. He's, um, so he's married and he managed to um, convince his wife. So he, he came, by this point in the story, he came clean to his wife. So his wife, who's in the scene, um, is aware of his perspective, which is that they hooked up. Um, later, I tried to tell her more. This is, this is my dude voice. I hope it's okay that I'm reading this in my dude voice. Later, I tried to tell her more, though she's asked no questions. 
I feel the need to hear myself say the word abortion, relay everything I just learned so my brain can begin to accept this new reality. My wife is on her laptop working, but she nods at me. I'm listening, she says when I pause. But the only moment she really listens is when I mention that place that masqueraded as a clinic. Katerine stops typing. It's a huge issue, these fake clinics, she says in her activist voice. Do you know about this? These crisis pregnancy centers are popping up all over the place, misleading women into believing they have more time than they actually do to get an abortion, scaring women with false medical information. I tune out while Katerine goes on like that for a while, as she does about anything she deems an injustice. They mostly go after uneducated women and, and women with no means. You said your friend was an immigrant? My friend. I'm not sure how to respond to this question. Well, in this case, nothing happened, I say. They figured it out, she and her girlfriend, and they left. Caused quite a scene on their way out, from what I understand. I know I'm being foolish, but it feels like Katerine is taking their side over mine. Good for them, she says. Good for them for not letting those assholes get away with their bullshit. Um, as an issue, uh, I wondered if you could talk to us about those crisis pregnancy centers and if you did research into them um, and how you chose to write about them. Um, yeah, I think at some point in the process of making this book, I became aware of it and it creeped me the hell out. I was just going to curse. Wait, this is an explicit uh, really podcast. Feel, feel, feel free. If we feel can't free. curse on this broadcast, <laughs> we're going to have to five years worth of episodes. I mean, <laughs> well, that just got you really excited. I'm going to take it up a notch with the cursing. Um, the crisis pregnancy center is infuriating. I mean, this topic, right? Yeah, exactly. They're infuriating um, in a way that warrants some language. But it's, yeah, I was really, I was creeped out to the point where like it was in my dreams for a while. When you first learn of this thing, it's those details in my story are real. Like they often will be right in front of a Planned Parenthood clinic or a, a legitimate abortion clinic. They would make buildings that look like it and put signs that look like it. They really got of their way to convince, to confuse women into thinking they're going into an abortion clinic. And often, and that tactic too of making uh, a woman be like, look, this is, you just have to consider it. Let's just make your appointment for this date. And what's the rush? You can take your time. And they make her appointment for like two days after whatever the cutoff point is in that state. So things like that, that are like diabolical, like really just so terrible. Um, and so, so yeah, that's, that became something that once I became aware of it and felt like we're not talking about this enough, like I was so creeped out. And oh, I should say, at least at the time that I was uh, researched it for my for writing the forward for this book, I think I'm I hope I'm not misquoting the number. I think there was something like 2700 of them, which is more than three per each remaining abortion clinic in this country. Um, so it's just it's just so scary. So yeah, I mean, this became something that I definitely wanted to make sure is in the book. In general, this process uh, from my end ended up being kind of a mirror image to what my process with was with the previous anthology with Indelible and the Hippocampus that I won't go into the inception story for that book, but it basically all started from a story I wrote. Whereas in this case, I really waited until the very last minute where I had compiled the book and was able to look at it and see what it was doing and what it was not yet doing that I wanted it to do and kind of made a very bizarre uh, prompt for myself as a writer that was like, 
of things that either weren't in the book or weren't enough in the book for what I wanted. So it was like a male point of view, queerness, sexual assault, healthcare for immigrants, the Palestinian plight. Like it was a very bizarre prompt. And that, and on that, and probably first on that list was like um, fake clinics. So crisis pregnancy centers, I always just say fake clinics, which is what they are. Um, so I basically then, tra- which is why the story ended up having three points of view, because then I, then you look at that list and you're like, no problem, go, <laughs> you know, just trying to kind of weave all of these different points into one uh, cohesive narrative. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. And that is, I mean, yeah, that's one of the other things that comes up is the the healthcare for um, undocumented people, because one of the ways that people try to kind of influence them is is by threatening their status, which that I um, did not know. is, I feel like, wow. a part of the discussion that we, we haven't really given enough airtime to. And then the other thing that I realized about these crisis pregnancy centers when I was doing this thing for Unrestrict Minnesota was that th- they're partially taxpayer funded, which like just made me in some places, in some places, I think. Um, and so like I'm paying for them. I'm still just, I mean, the way that that money and f- the way that funding is routed away from things that would actually improve um, reproductive freedoms um, and to sort of scam artists like this is just appalling. Um, and so this book does have this incredible breadth and depth. And in, in addition to the two of you, there are a ton of fantastic writers, um, including several who have been on the show, like R.O. Kwan and Deborah Landau and, and Debel and Unferth. And, and they're also, you know, all writing different stories using to- different tones and styles and structures and, and genres. This is a multi-genre anthology. And I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about how your thinking on this subject was changed or, or influenced by other stories that you read in here. Oh, um, I think one of the things was that... Um... I was interested to know, like, because I, I, I mean, in contributing to this, I was like, okay, like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't know what other people are going to be contributing, but I, I was like, writing from a fiction standpoint and writing about something I hadn't written about before felt, um, I think we said this before, it's like, exciting is not the right word for it. it exciting is not the right word. I, I felt... Um, Challenging in a good um, way? That kind yeah, that kind of like uh, where like the the creative mind wakes up in this kind of way where it's like, okay, this is a, this is a challenge and this is asking me to do something or think in a way or ask a question in a way that I haven't asked before. Um, and I wasn't sh- totally sure like who all was going to be in the anthology, but I trusted Shelley to know that like it would be a community of writers where we would be like really... Because the thing I think a lot about, like, art is, like, I just want people to be asking a lot of questions. So I think this is a lot. Um, and so now seeing, like, how the collection sits together, um, um, we were having a back and forth with uh, Rachel Eliza Griffiths the other day. And I was like, this is a back and forth in a way where it's, like, I feel like even though we weren't, like, talking to each other while we were making this art, it still feels like we were in conversation. I was like, I feel like we were talking to each other even without, like, necessarily, like, reading each other's art at the time. So sitting and looking, like, what the anthology looks like now, it's like, even though I wasn't in direct conversation when I was making my story, it still feels like it sits besides those works and feels like they're talking to each other and touch each other. One of the threads that I was really interested in as I was reading the anthology as I was reading the anthology was the presence of queerness and just kind of multiple stories and and the way that it affects um, the way that reproductive freedoms are affecting members of the queer community and I saw this in so many pieces and they were in conversation in such interesting ways and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, queer writing in this anthology. 
that's a really great question that's kind of making me scan my brain in a in a slightly challenging way. Um, I think you know queerness is one such uh, obvious answer that we've been that we've covered a little bit. So that's one thread that I was certainly aware of in in curating and editing the book. And while um, I invited a bunch of queer authors to contribute, and I think probably something close to half of the contributors list are folks that identify as queer. But in terms of um, the work they ended up making, a bunch of those pieces didn't center queerness. So I think the actual queer thread in the book is probably only the two pieces we've been talking about, Kristen's and mine. And then one other play that comes to mind is um, Donetta Lavinia Grace's uh, play, um, They Just Might Be Seen, which is the story of a trans man who's pregnant. And I think that might be it in terms of queer stories. But there's a bunch of other themes that I was so um, kind of highly aware of um, in, in, in the way that I was talking about earlier, you know, in terms of pulling different threads and trying to make sure that there aren't redundancies or that there, if they are, that they feel more like echoes. Um, and so one such topic was climate and all the ways in which the climate crisis kind of has an interesting, um, is, is in, in an interesting conversation with uh, reproductive freedom in all kinds of ways. And one piece that, that touches on that is Deb Olin Unferth's um, essay called My Nieces, and also Deborah Landau's poem, uh, Climate Primer for Babies, kind of touches, touches on that in a different way. And, and there are sort of obvious connections between that and child freeness, which I was super aware of. Um, which is something very close to my heart too. And I cover that. There's a piece also in the book, an epistolary piece of uh, letters between myself and the writer Hannah Lilith Asadi. And so we kind of touch on on that too and kind of her, um, she's pregnant at the time uh, that we're writing these pieces and, and sort of sharing about her doubts about becoming a mother and I'm child free and I sort of cover that and and how I arrived at that choice. So, um, so and and child freeness, you know, again, they're kind of obvious echoes with <clears throat> with um, with climate in a way, but I was thinking of it as its own topic in the book. And so there's also um, Alison Espach's story, Let's Just Be Normal and Have a Baby kind of takes that on the story of a woman um, who wants to be child-free but finds herself in a relationship with someone she loves who is dying and his dying wish is to have a child and kind of how she navigates that um, and child-freeness in, in, in light of that. Um, there's the, the topic or the thread in the book of, of race and racism in America and how that intersects with reproductive freedom and um i think a bunch of a bunch of the pieces kind of take that on in different ways um but the ones that i think really center it that come to mind are um tommy orange's um short story my Hayove, um and also rachel isaac griffith's piece uh which is photographs and an essay titled journal of my birth um and tiffany anique's uh divorcedly 
I think those are kind of the main ones, but a bunch of other ones um, touch on that too. So again, if I'm thinking of like pulling threads in the editorial process, I was certainly working with more than just those three in mind. Um, I could go on and this answer is getting too long, but I'll just say one more, one more thing, one more topic that I was super aware of is disability and how disability uh, also intersects in really powerful, interesting ways that we should be examining um, with reproductive freedom. So the kind of two pieces that come to mind, um, also not the only ones that, that deal with that, but the, the ones that kind of um, come to mind on that front is uh, Reva Lehrer's um, essay, Curse of the Spider Woman, and then Cade Lebron's essay, Compliance, A Guide. Um, so yeah, I hope, that, I hope that kind of answers the question. I think, you know, just really the the beautiful ways in which these writers and artists were kind of echoing each other and in a way holding each other in all of these ways um, that I was aware of and got to witness behind the scenes, even though they didn't even know that they were doing that for each other. And there's something really beautiful about that. In the real world here, things look bleak. Uh, art is vibrant and crucial, but we, need, we also need votes. We need laws. We need more Supreme Court justices, maybe. Uh, we definitely could use a few more Democrats in the Senate. Um, Senate Democrats recently failed to pass a bill that would p- protect abortion rights nationwide, partly because of Joe Manchin and lone Democrat to vote against it. A recent CNN poll, CNN poll shows that 66% of Americans do not want Roe overturned. And there are indications that the GOP is concerned about how this issue might play in the 2022 midterms. We haven't talked a lot about politics of this issue, but we're going to talk about it now. What is your view of the current state, political state of this debate? Presuming Roe is overturned, uh, what happens next? Kristen, we'll start with you. Oh, my goodness. What a question. Um, I mean, I think it's something that, like, we have to think about. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a body issue. It's a safety issue. I mean, if it's overturned, people are still having abortions. I mean, it's, it's something that will happen regardless. It just will happen with less safety and less care. Um, and, it, I mean, it's something that happened previous, and it's just something that will continue to occur with all kinds of bodies. Um, you know, it's like regardless of, like, gender and, like, orientation, like, re- like abortions will continue to happen. So it's like, it's like something where it's like just because it's not legal doesn't mean it's not occurring. So I don't know. Um, that's It's tough. Uh, yeah, I guess it's just those things will happen, but with less safety and less, less care and, and with harm to people, which is a terrible thing to consider and think about. Yeah, I think to, to Kristen's point, I heard, I'm just trying to think of where I'm quoting this from, because I've been mostly just reading and listening to like all of my content in the last two weeks has been about this topic. So now I, I'm not sure where I'm quoting this from, but I heard on, on a podcast, someone was saying like the best case um, for abortion rights is what it looks like when when abortion is legal. So to Kristen's point, like it never, it, the only real consequence is women's safety is um, decreased significantly. And it become. I mean, it's going to be a shit show that I think we can kind of all easily agree yeah, on. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's a good way to describe it, a shit yeah, show. Uh, yeah. I mean, to be fair, it already is. Like there's, you know, um, things were dire when I started working on this book and started getting to, to just learning a little bit more about the topic. I was already like, really freaked out. I mean, think about, I think we need to, to only the fact that the Dobbs case, the Mississippi case that is, is up before the Supreme court is, um, the one 
remain the clinic in the case is the one last remaining clinic in the state of Mississippi. What more do you need to know to understand that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, this is the culmination of such a long process of escalation and deterioration in terms of um, of, of abortion rights. Um, but I also want to, inter- if we're thinking ahead to, to what it's going to look like, I want to mention the Bridget Alliance, which is um, our partner, or rather the publisher's partner in this book. And they're um, part of a network of, of such organizations. They help facilitate um, travel. They arrange and fund travel for, for people all over the country that need to travel for abortion care. And so when you ask, what is it going to look like? I think a lot like that. I think a lot of organizations like that will will step up as as much as they can. No doubt on the other side, I think, you know, when they're saying now like, oh, what's the problem? It's just going to go back to the states. Not only is that so ignorant in terms of the, the, you know, the number of women who cannot travel for various reasons. And of course, that always falls to women, um, to women of color more, to women with less means more, to, to younger women more like, et cetera, et cetera. And then again, good, thank God that we do have, I don't know if thank God is the right choice of words here, but 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 I am grateful that these organizations exist um, that help with that. Um, totally lost my train of thought there, but it's just, it's easy to get distracted when, when thinking about what it's going to look like. Oh, I guess I was making the point that they're saying now, oh, it's just bring, taking it back to the States, but their efforts to block it then on a state level are already in full swing. And, and also obviously from the legal standpoint too, they will try to ban it and not have it be up to the States the minute they can. So it's all such bullshit which I just learned I'm allowed to say. So let me say with all my heart, this is such bullshit. Yeah. On that cheery note, uh, in a discussion for which there really are no cheery notes, we want to thank both of you for your conversation today. We want to encourage our listeners to pick up I Know What's Best for You, which came out on May 24th. And so is available everywhere. Um, when you buy it, you can also get its international ebook supplement, I Know What's Best for You All Over the World, which features 16 writers and artists from around the globe. Shelly and Kristen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!